Hello and welcome to another episode of Farmerama. Lots of fungi this month, for soil health and for eating. And we explore the parallels between farmland and our own bodies. We're in Dorset, where a young farmer introduces us to an experimental, pizza-shaped chicken enclosure. And we hear how vineyards are working with changing climates. The sudden cold spell has got me a little under the weather, so apologies if my voice is a little crackly. It's also because you've been out on a lot of farms recently in the last week, haven't you? Yeah, and the chilly wind really just caught me off guard. Autumn has come with a a bump. We start the show today with some more from Dr. Christine Jones, who we featured last month. Lots of people told us how much they enjoyed what she had to say. I think she's been one of the most popular guests we've ever had, and we think she's absolutely wonderful, so we're happy to share some more of our conversation with her. Here she is, talking mushrooms. I've heard people talking about establishing cover crops, multi-species cover crops that are meant to be soil builders, they're meant to be primers, and they're putting them in with slug pellets and insecticide and fungicide and fertiliser and all of these things, and I'm thinking they're just really not quite getting it about what we're putting, the reason that we're putting a multi-species cover crop in. Because what we want to see under a multi-species crop, or even putting companions into a cash crop, is that we're doing that to stimulate particularly mycorrhizal fungi in the soil. And mycorrhizal fungi are the the internet and the highway of the soil, but they're also the communication network. All of the plants in a field will be joined together underground by the hyphae of mycorrhizal fungi, and they can swap nutrients, they can swap water. And if things get a little bit tough, like the, the hot, dry weather that you've had recently in the UK... Mycorrhizal fungi are absolutely vital for keeping those plants alive, bringing water to them from quite a long way away. They can reach where plant roots can't reach. They can transport things incredibly quickly. No one's even really sure how how it's done. But you can measure things moving along the hyphae of mycorrhizal fungi and you can see it in real time with special photography that they have now. They use nanoparticles that you can just pick them up and you can watch them moving and they're just moving so fast. It's just absolutely extraordinary. And the other thing I've seen that's, you know, with the technology we have now for being able to film these things in soil is bacteria using the hyphae of mycorrhizal fungi as a, as a highway, basically. You can see them all moving along the outside of the hyphae. People always used to say, oh, bacteria can't move very far. Like a bacterium, it's such a tiny cell, hasn't got any legs. It can only move just a fraction from where it was that they can't get around in soil, but people weren't thinking about mycorrhizal fungi. Mm. And, you know, you can see these things on YouTube these days. You go, oh, my goodness, it's just a, it really is a highway with all these bacteria marching along from one place, like armies of bacteria. It's just quite stunning to really see it. So, you know, and the other thing that happens in the hyphae of mycorrhizal fungi is its bidirectional flow. In that, in other words, the sugars are moving one way from the plant out into the soil ecosystem, And in the other direction, we have minerals and trace elements. And yet when you look inside the cytoplasm, inside the hyphae, there's no dotted line down the middle that says sugar goes this side and, you know, minerals go that side. They're passing each other without bumping into each other. There's no membrane in there that separates things going one way and things going the other way. And no one has been able to figure out how they actually do that. 
So, you know, these are quite extraordinary organisms. In fact, fungi are extraordinary organisms and the largest living thing on the planet is a single fungus that's, you know, several kilometres wide. There's a few of them actually in the Pacific Northwest in the United States. So they're bigger than a whale. Um, and even mycorrhizal fungi, one single mycorrhizal fungi can occupy an area the size of a football field. And, you know, they're macro-organisms, but we call them microbes because we can't see them or we need to have a microscope to be able to see them. So when we're standing on the soil, we're standing on the roof of another world and we really don't know very much about it. And we abuse it. We abuse life in the soil. I just cringe when people talk about using fungicides and insecticides. And I've been in crops where it looks perfectly healthy and the farmer says, I just sprayed fungicide in here three days ago or something, and that makes me cringe anyway. I want to get out of the crop straight away. And I say, well, I can't see any sign of any issues here. Why have you used fungicide? Oh, well, it's because they always say if you put wheat after maize that it's going to be you know, susceptible to fusarium or something like that. So we've, it's just a preventative. You know, The agronomist says to put this on just in case. And that's one of the issues that we have. Sure, if you had a fungal problem that was going to result in you losing that crop, then yes, use a fungicide. You know, you can't forego your income. But you have to think about, well, maybe next year I'll do things differently so that that doesn't happen again. But certainly never using it just just in case. Because fungicide kills a lot of fungi, including all the beneficial fungi in your soil. And there's just this miraculous world that's under our feet our survival depends on the survival of life in the soil. And our survival depends not just on the survival of life in the soil, but in how well it's functioning. So we have to do everything we can to enable it, and we're disabling it mm. <laughs> as fast as we possibly can. But often, well, nearly always in ignorance, I'm sure, mm -hmm. if farmers really knew what these chemicals were doing to life in the soil, they would be thinking twice about using them. And unfortunately, the information that they get their agronomists are often telling them to use those things because they're on a commission and, you know, their, their income depends on them selling things to farmers. Mm. So it's not a very good model. Dr Christine Jones. If you missed her last month talking about carbon cycles, then check that out on our SoundCloud page. Harry Boglioni runs a truly mixed farm nestled amongst the Dorset Hills. We visited earlier this summer and were amazed at the many different things he has going on at Hay Farm. His majestic roaming chickens get some special attention as they flutter around the top of the hillside with an intriguing line of houses from which they're free to choose where to nest. Some tall and thin, some pointy, some flat-roofed, each one a mark on the road to Harry's perfect hen house. Harry told us what he's learnt so far and how the bird flu threats earlier this year took his thinking in a whole new direction. My name is Harry Boglioni and my farm's called Hay Farm and I run it with my partner Emily and the rest of the people that work here. I won't name everyone. It's a mixed farm. We do pretty much a little bit of everything except for dairy. We have about seven hundred. Yeah, I think about 700 laying hens and about 600 meat chickens at any time. Well, meat chickens fluctuate between 600 and 900. Okay. Well, kind of up until now, we've kind of experimented with a whole lot of kind of different kind of mobile chicken houses. We've made some kind of completely from scratch of our, like my own designs. And then, yeah, we've had about, yeah, we're on like Mark three 
of my own design. So we've got like three different ones and um, I've made some out of kind of like reclaimed chicken houses, which are good and bad. I don't know. I think I'm going to stick to making my own. I think it's all about kind of functionality and kind of like having a good system for the eggs, which Aaron, who works for me, has definitely like perfected. We've got kind of like roll away nest boxes and he's kind of like improved them by putting astroturf inside them to kind of keep the eggs even cleaner and then we've made flaps so we can close them and so that's kind of like the eggs and then kind of you want to make sure they're as dry as possible so kind of make sure your water system isn't a leaky one and then they've got to be easy to move and I find the best way to make them easy to move is by having kind of a bulletproof steel frame that they kind of built up off so then like even if you kind of pivot it around a bank or a hedge or off a fence post or something get it stuck in a sticky place you can kind of usually just yank it out whereas kind of the prefabricated ones that you buy are yeah usually on like shitty little aluminium frames this winter we had kind of bird well we didn't have bird flu but the uk was kind of on the lockdown well the whole of europe was on lockdown with bird flu so i was kind of a bit frustrated i had to keep all my chickens inside so Having mobile housings is not ideal for locking chickens indoors because they're not designed for it. So I put all my chickens in the barn, but that meant I couldn't put my cows in the barn, which meant like I damaged some of my pastures, which meant the grass didn't grow as quick this year. So I'm a bit kind of short on grass and stuff. So I've actually kind of like going towards kind of having a big kind of static chicken house, which kind of gives them a lot of kind of indoor space. So if we do have to lock them up, they're still happy. But also kind of has all the benefits of a mobile house so kind of to achieve that we've kind of um yeah I've designed a house which is going to have like pizza shaped fields coming off it maybe four to eight fields I'm not sure exactly how many yet and the chickens will move around the house as opposed to the house moving around the fields and um and we're gonna with that we're gonna experiment a bit with like agroforestry and have some orchards and stuff so we'll kind of each pizza shape will be a different type of fruit probably and um, hopefully we'll be able to plan it in a way that kind of we have the early fruiting fruits and then we have the late late fruiting fruits so they kind of the chickens kind of obviously in the winter it kind of doesn't count but in the summer you can kind of have your early fruiting fruits kind of no chickens in there then when you've finished harvesting the fruits the kind of chickens can go in and clean up all the windfall and kind of eat any leftover fruit or kind of graded out fruit so kind of the chickens are benefiting from the fruit the fruit's benefiting from the chickens because chickens are shitting on it and the whole system's working the pasture between it's benefiting from the chickens and that and yeah hopefully it'll work quite nicely as a little kind of integrated system i said most about it i think the other kind of benefit about having them in one kind of big area is we can ring fence the whole field with a foxproof fence so kind of at the moment we're reliant on electric fences that are not 100% foxproof so yeah there'd be less mortality to foxes mm-hmm. my main concern is because the house isn't going to be mobile like the rats could kind of get quite comfortable there but I was thinking of making kind of like sumps inside the house which will be full of sawdust like make rat homes so the sumps will be like steel sumps with kind of holes for the rats to get in, but the holes will also be able to be closed. So you'll be able to kind of let the rats nest in there and then you'll be able to close it off and take the whole sump out and dispose of the rats and then put the sump back ready for the next generation of rats. And um, yeah, I'll rat proof the kind of lower edge of the whole house so the rats can't actually live inside the house, but they might choose to live in the fields around the house and then, yeah, we'll have mm-hmm. to kind of dig them out because we don't use poison. Yeah, we've got lots of barn owls and stuff, so, Mm. yeah.
Uh, I guess if you don't try things out, you never know. And if you don't make mistakes, you're not learning enough. Harry Boglioni at Hay Farm. For Bristol-based Patrick Mallory, growing mushrooms started as a hobby, but he's now turned it into a business. His company is called Upcycled Mushrooms. As the name suggests, he is all about using fungi to convert waste materials into something delicious and nutritious. Here he tells us about clever ways to grow fungi outdoors. My name's Patrick. I run a small mushroom farm in the outskirts of Bristol. It's called Upcycle Mushrooms. It comes from the fact that I'm trying to take lots of waste streams from the city and turn them back into food and compost eventually as well. I was always quite interested in growing food just from working with my nan a bit with her greenhouse and stuff and then I decided to have a go at growing mushrooms and yeah just something kind of clicked for me personally anyway it's really quite gets quite technical but it's also still quite wholesome and in contact with the soil and stuff like that so it just appealed to me in many many ways. I failed many many times over the last few years but um, it's got steadily more efficient as I've got better at it. So can you maybe just tell us about one of those first failures and kind of what that was like? What did it feel like? I managed to get an entire basket of oyster straw, like colonised and clean, and then decided I would be cheeky and try and split it and expand it into two baskets, and I didn't pasteurise the straw properly and then lost both of them in one go. Yeah, it was pretty annoying. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so pasteurising straw is, is key. For the oyster growing, yeah, in the way that I do it, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it has to be definitely pasteurised all the way through. Maybe you could just tell us a bit about the idea of mushroom growing as a companion crop and how that might work and why. One of the styles of growing that I've been doing is to grow kingstropharia, or the wine cap as it's sometimes called, on outdoor wood chip beds. So you can do it indoors as well, but it's definitely one that's suited to outdoor growing. And essentially what it's doing is it's taking wood chip and breaking it back down into soil and creating really good quality soil which you can then plant perennial plants through the bed itself and they can then suck up all those nutrients and use it to produce fruit and other crops as well. Mm. So you know, it's a really efficient way of growing multiple crops on the same space without needing more land to be able to do it. You can just add in this like living mulch layer essentially by putting wood chip around the base of it. I mean, with a lot of perennial fruit bushes, you quite often would be mulching with wood chip anyway, so this is just a much more efficient way of putting it down and getting more food. Under an apple tree is a good place to grow mushrooms? Yep. Um, I wouldn't say that you want the chip right up against the tree because generally with the breaking down of a wood chip, there's a lot of organisms that could attack the tree, but around it, generally, yeah, you could do it around apple trees, definitely. A lot of the stuff with the beds is about where you're positioning them. So you're looking for probably north-facing side of something and shady spots, generally where you're not going to be wanting plants. Obviously, by growing it with fruit bushes and stuff, you're creating the shade with the bush itself at the top or with apple trees and things like that. Um, And then as you come into the fruiting season uh, with them, you generally need to keep quite steady watering regime up to be able to keep them fruiting throughout the whole season um, less so in the spring and the autumn because obviously it rains more and generally the conditions are more favourable for the mushrooms themselves but you can get them to fruit all through the summer as well if you're on it. So what months are you having fruiting from? From about May till November 
Yeah, obviously further north it's going to be slightly shorter season because the conditions are colder in the extremes of that. But yeah, generally it's a pretty long growing season. So if I wanted to get started growing some mushrooms like in this way, what would be the first steps? Uh, generally it's a good idea to try and source the wood chip that you're looking for first of all. So contact tree surgeons or people are boratorists around you and try and get hold of some wood chip. You generally want deciduous chip because they're not that keen on conifer due to the resins in it. Um, and then once you've got that available or ready to be delivered, then find a supplier and get hold of some wine cap spawn, which generally comes already pre-grown onto wood chip. And you just kind of make a sandwich with it. So you put a layer of wood chip down and then put the spawn into the middle and then another layer of wood chip over the top and then just try and keep it moist inside the bed throughout the first year because it's going to take about eight months or so to colonise through the whole bed and grow out. And then if you've put it in in the early spring, you should start getting fruiting the first autumn, but if not, it'll be the following spring that they start fruiting and then they fruit for the whole year. There's quite a few guides online. There's some good forums and stuff as well, um, really good books. Paul Stamets is a good person to look for with his work. Um, He's released quite a few books on cultivation, both indoor and outdoor. And, yeah, just look up local spawn suppliers to where you are. Um, there's few of us around. We run a three-day course quite often. Uh, we're looking to take it around the country a bit more as well in the future. And if you want any more information or spawn supplies, you can get in contact with me. My email is upcycledmushroom at gmail.com. Or just come to the site in Bristol and we can also show you what we're doing and show you how it works in a bit more depth as well. Anything you want to share with fellow farmers out there? Grow mushrooms as well as plants. They're a valuable crop and they contribute to soil health in a big, big way. Patrick's fungi come in all shapes, sizes and colours. Check out Upcycled Mushrooms on Facebook for some otherworldly photos, as well as information on courses he runs. At the Groundswell Conference earlier this summer, Abby Glencross got the Soil Life Lowdown from Anne Bicklay. Anne and her husband, David Montgomery, are a geologist and biologist duo that have written a series of books about soil, microbial life, and how this all relates to agriculture. Anne told us how soil microbial underworlds are linked to human health. There's things about the microbial world that we've been pretty wrong about, and it turns out that we really are better off both our farms, uh, the soil on our farms and in our gardens, and when it comes to our own bodies, we're better off with uh, microbes probably in our lives than absent from our lives. The root system of a plant and the human gut really share a lot in common when it comes to the underpinnings of health, which sort of reside in the respective microbiomes of each of those um, sort of beings, if you will, you know, the botanical world and the human world. Most people really haven't thought of their bodies as an ecosystem, and much less that they've got something like the soil microbiome, you know, really at our very core, which is the lower part of our digestive tract in the colon.
So <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do our book talk and sometimes people's eyes get really big, <laughs> can look out in the audience. And uh, a couple of people have said, wow, you know, I never thought about my, my body and specifically my gut as, uh, you know, something like the soil in which we, we grow things, you know, our food. So I think for most people, it's, it's kind of an epiphany and it's a really different way to think about, um, to think about your body. And, and just as Dave was talking, you know, about, the, about uh, regenerative conservation agriculture, those three principles of ditch the plow, cover the soil, and grow diversity, they actually apply to our body, to, you know, our inner, our inner soil. So ditching the plow, all right, so there's this, this notion, you know, that sometimes, you know, it's uh, unsanitary and we need to be cleaning our colons out and doing all of these things. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's that principle of, you know, no disturbance. So no need to be getting in to our bodies and cleaning anything out, really. And then you think about the cover-up part, you know, the cover-up part of, of the soil. And what that is, is uh, you want to be eating foods that make it all the way down to the, to the colon. And so those are basically whole plant foods, complex carbohydrates, fiber, because we don't have the digestive enzymes to break that stuff down. So it passes right through the stomach, small intestine, lands in the tranquil grazing pastures of our microbiome. And so there, you know, you just think about getting, getting enough of that kind of food down there and your microbiome is fed. And then the diversity, the last point, grow a diversity of crops. Oh, eat a diversity of foods because just like the soil microbiome, we've got an array of, of strains and species of bacteria and, and, and other microorganisms that uh, can eat a wide variety of things. And so our microbiome depends on us for a diverse diet. So I, I just, you know, every time I think about this more, the parallels are just kind of you know, right, right next to one another. And it also, you know, we came up with like six, six words for the hidden half of nature that I also think apply to the soil microbiome. And, um, and they are mulch your soil inside and out. And that, that just kind of cover, covers things, ha ha. You know, we're, we're covering things up, it's a diversity and we're doing low disturbance. So it's, it's a really interesting parallel. And I think when you apply those principles, um, it, also makes me realize what a, what a part of the earth, you know, each and every human being is, right? Because we've got this whole inner ecosystem that is intimately connected to what's going on outside of our bodies, and it's this sort of constant interchange back and forth. That was Anne Bickley. We also spoke to David about good soil health and his most recent book, Growing a Revolution. This interview's up on our SoundCloud page. Thanks again to our supporters, E5 Bakehouse. If you're ever in London, head to London Fields to try some of their bread and check out their in-house flour mill. It's awesome and so are they. More and more farmers are planting vineyards in the UK, as British wines are being internationally recognised and there's demand for English grapes.
We've even heard that French champagne houses are buying up plots of land in the UK because it might be too hot in France to grow some grapes in 15 to 20 years' time. We went and visited Bride Valley Vineyards, not too far from Harry in Dorset, and spoke to vineyard manager Graham Fisher about his thoughts on growing grapes in a changing climate. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the uh, the climate in the UK is definitely warming, that's for sure. You know, 20-plus years ago, uh, you would have struggled to get uh, Chardonnay to ripen uh, enough to make into... Uh, uh, sparkling wine, let alone still wine, because uh, there are people making still Chardonnays now in the UK. Um, so it's definitely in, warmed up. Uh, although what I would say, the, 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 the flip side of that is, is that I think perhaps the weather has become a little bit uh, less predictable. So we are seeing instances of uh, sort of higher rainfall, but in shorter bursts. So the sort of traditional English winter slash spring summer of sort of drizzly, misly rain has been replaced by, you know, sort of fairly sharp falls of rain. Mm. Uh, and equally things like uh, uh, incidences of frost as well. You know, it's not that we never had frosts, but they seem to be a bit more uh, frequent and a lot heavier than they would have been in the past, to my view. Um, so that, that's uh, never a good thing. And actually hail as well. Uh you know, up until a couple of years ago, I'd never worked on a vineyard that had experienced hail damage. Um, but I have now. You know, we are in a, a region which is deemed as being marginal for growing grapes. Um, so it, it's pretty challenging. So if the weather doesn't help you, then it just makes the job harder. The vineyard industry is often one of the most chemical-intensive types of agriculture. So it was also interesting to hear from Graham how they're experimenting with different cover crops, planting trees for shelter, and grazing sheep in their vineyards. Shout out to everyone who made it down to the meetup we held in London a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was great fun. We sat huddled in a greenhouse, we enjoyed a drink, um, and chatted about all the things we've learnt, all the people we've met, in making the show over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think we had maybe 20 people turn up, who'd been involved in the show in one way or another, either as a guest or reporter or listener. It was actually a really serendipitous evening because first we bumped into Alice Fowler of Gardener's World and The Guardian, and then Mama D, who, whose voice you might remember very well from episode 23. We'll definitely be doing this again soon, so keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter for news of the next one. We will, maybe harvest. Yeah. We're pushing it a bit, aren't we? Yeah, end of harvest celebrations. This show was made by Abby Rose, Katie Revel, and me, Joe Barrett, with an additional interview from Abby Glencross. We'd also like to thank Annie Landless for the help she's been giving us managing our social media. Find us at Farmarama underscore underscore on Twitter and Instagram. And you can easily find us on Facebook at Farmarama Radio. Oh, and our website is farmarama.co. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back at the end of October. Toodaloo!